First John chapter five, at the very end of the book, beginning in verse 18, it says, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true and that we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. The little book of 1 John has served as a treasure trove for the Christian seeking sweet fellowship with the Lord, real fellowship with fellow believers. John has provided us with a series of tests or proofs or evidences that we really know God in chapter 2, verses 2 through 29. That we really love God in chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to chapter 4, verse 21. That we really believe God, chapter 5, verse 1, all the way to the end of the chapter. There's the test of being born again in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. The test of believing the witness that's been provided by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The word of God concerning Jesus in chapter 5 verses 6 through 15. And now the test of living free from the enslaving bondage of sin in verses 16 through 21. So John invites us to ask and answer the question concerning our fellowship with God and our fellowship with each other, is it true, are we living free from sin? John reminds us that if we're living in righteousness, we're free from sin. The Christian is not free to live a lifestyle of sin and disobedience and rebellion. And so, once again, it begs the question, how do we live free from sin? John has already given us permission in verse 16 and 17 to confront one another over sin, to pray for one another when we find ourselves in sin. How else do we live free from sin? We recognize and appreciate Everything that we are in Christ. Everything that we have in Christ. So John is going to provide a kind of confession of faith. A confession about sanctification in verse 18. A confession about belief and regeneration in verse 18. We know, he says, that we are of God. And then a confession about the incarnation in verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come. And has given us understanding. John makes it clear that true believers obey the commands of his word. 
In chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, chapter 2 again in verse 28, chapter 3 in verse 10, chapter 5 in verse 2. So you might be wondering, again, why does he keep repeating himself? What you might think of as repetition, he thinks of as reinforcement. Christ followers believe the truth of the gospel message. We hear it so often that sometimes it seems like a just a, a simple statement of fact when we say that Jesus is the savior. And then we fail or neglect to reflect on all that that means. We cannot defeat sin or experience victory over sin apart from the presence of Jesus in our life, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. It was the famous Puritan John Owens who said, every system which attempts to deal with sin without Christ and the Holy Spirit is legalistic and miserable. So the Bible's way of dealing with sin isn't do better or even be better. And the worst, the worst, the worst is to try to deal with sin if you don't have a right relationship with God and you've never been born again, you've never been changed from the inside out. And so John says in verse 18, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself. We are to keep ourselves from sin and all unrighteousness. But John doesn't leave these things to just simple speculation or guesswork. So when he says, and you should note, in verse 18, we know. In verse 19, we know. In verse 20, we know. The repetition of that implies certainty. And assurance. The knowledge isn't just simply on the basis of I told you so over and over again. The knowledge rests in the character of God and in the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. John is saying these things not in the sense of we know because you've heard it over and over again. It's we know because we know who God is and we know who Jesus is. We know who God is. We know who Jesus is. As a matter of fact, the New Living Translation translates this passage this way. It says, we know that those who have become a part of God's family don't make a practice of sinning for God's son holds them securely and the evil one can't get his hands on them. So does the passage teach that Christians never sin? Let me help you think about this. Because you might read it and go, we know that whoever is born of God doesn't sin. It seems just to indicate that the Christian doesn't sin. But it can't mean that. That can't be the right conclusion. How do we know that? In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, when we go all the way back to the beginning of our study, we read from John if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
So what do we do with these two statements? John affirms the principle of sin in chapter 1, verse 9. Verse 9 speaks of the denial of a particular sin. Verse 10 of the denial of personal sinning. Remember he says that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Christian isn't sinless, but the Christian should sin less. There are two readings based on what scholars call a textual variant. I'm going to be in the weeds just for a moment, but I'm going to come out of the weeds and give you a way to think about what I'm about to say. A textual variant means that there are two Greek manuscript families that provide two different readings. The expression born of God is sometimes rendered God's son. We know that whoever is born of God or whoever is God's son. The reason why this becomes such an important issue is because it helps us get an idea of what the passage is trying to tell us. The expression born of God is sometimes rendered God's son. If this means a Christian or a Christ follower, the Christ follower holds themselves. But I suspect that that's probably not the meaning. It isn't you just simply making the choice to avoid sin. Although there is a certain element in which you make certain choices that are going to be helpful or not helpful. I think what it means is that the Son of God keeps the believer from sin. In what way? When you're born again and the power of God and the presence of God and the Spirit of God is inside of your life. The Bible teaches that you are no longer under sin's jurisdiction, so to speak. I've used the illustration of Sammy the Bull Gravano, who is in the mafia. And they say, if you testify against the mafia, what we're going to do is we're going to give you a new life and a new identity, and we're going to relocate you, and you get to live your life Free from your past. And so as you can imagine, is it possible to say, we're going to make a deal with you. We're going to give you a new name and we're going to give you a new occupation and we're going to give you a new location. But if you haven't fundamentally changed in your heart, then the chances are you might do the same things you did before. And then the illustration of Sammy the Bull Gravano, who was used by the mafia to commit a number of different crimes... He gets a new identity, he gets relocated, he goes to Phoenix, Arizona, and he begins to sell hot merchandise out of his trunk of his Lincoln Continental with the license plates made man. And you have to sit there and go, wait a minute, we've given you a whole brand new start, but you're still living your life as if none of that ever really happened. 
John is making the argument that that's not who you are. You've really been changed. You've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And because you've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, then you don't have to be under sin's jurisdiction. The sinner who repents and becomes a true believer is delivered from the penalty of sin in the past. We're provided power in order to experience victory over sin in the present. One day we're completely removed from the presence of sin. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. And it doesn't appear what we shall be, but we know this, that when he shall appear... We're going to be like him because we're going to see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in his heart purifies himself, even as he is pure. So we have to be born again. We have to place ourselves in the keeping power of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he means when he says we know that whoever is born of God doesn't sin. Doesn't have a propensity towards sin or a predisposition towards sin or bondage towards sin. We place ourselves in the keeping power of the Lord Jesus. Again, Williams translates this verse. We know that no one who is born of God Sins, but he, the Son of God, who was born of God, keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that every single person has sinned and is guilty of sin. So, again, what does this mean in practical terms? John encourages us to remember that we've been born again by the Spirit. And because we're no longer under the jurisdiction of sin, and because Jesus has forgiven our sins, we can walk in freedom. We can walk in the absence of guilt. Jesus has taken our sin upon himself. We are chosen, adopted, accepted in the beloved. So it begs yet another question. Well, what about our current sins then? How do we deal with our current sins? And remember, throughout our study in the, in the book of 1 John, I've reminded you of something. Jesus forgives your sins past, present, and future. If Jesus forgives all of your sin, past, present, and future... Then you might ask the question, well, then why do I have to ask forgiveness of my sin? And why do I have to be concerned about sin? And why do I even need to listen to what John has to say about sin? Remember what he's already argued. That sin hinders our fellowship with God. And our fellowship with each other. And remember what I've tried to tell you throughout our lessons. The difference between relationship fellowship. Relationship is what you have by virtue of birth. My children are my children because their mother gave birth to them. They have my name on their birth certificate. I have fellowship with my children when I talk with them or when I walk with them or when I'm with them. Some of my children are with me. One of my my oldest son is away on deployment overseas. I get to talk with him via email or text or whatever. In other words, we renew our 
fellowship, when we talk to each other, when we're with one another. Our relationship doesn't change, but our fellowship changes in direct proportion to our ability to talk with each other and be with each other. Your relationship in Christ never changes if you've been born again by the Holy Spirit. Your fellowship changes if he's distant or gone in this sense. Remember, our sin separates us from God. And that's why all of this stuff becomes so important. We confess our sin, it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. We admit our struggle with sin. And so again, in order to live free from sin, look what it says. And the wicked one does not touch him. This is interesting. The word touch is the Greek word hapto, which means to lay hold of or to grasp or to grip. The idea seems to include the absence of the ability to cause permanent harm to the believer. If you've ever taken long distance trips with your children or grandchildren or maybe you were a child and your parents hauled you all across the country and they stuck you in the back seat with your brother and sister and you remember that someone saying, he touched me. You know, you would bug each other and you would touch each other because you're in this physical proximity to each other. This doesn't mean touch in the sense of tap. It means I think, to, to cause permanent harm. Does Satan have the ability to cause temporary harm? I think that the answer is yes. I'm going to suggest that whatever harm Satan is able to accomplish has to go through the loving, discerning, Hands of our heavenly father. Remember we learned over and over again. When Satan at the beginning of the book of Job. Says does your you know he says. Have, the Lord says have you considered my servant Job. There's no one like him in the whole world. And Satan says that's because you put a hedge of protection around him. And the Lord says I'm going to lift this protection. And you can do what you want to him. But just preserve his life. You'll remember in the New Testament, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, Satan has asked for you to sift you like wheat. And Peter's response, you said no, right? No, that's not in the text. That's actually not what the Bible says. It doesn't say, you said no, right? Rather, Jesus said, once you're tempted or tested, strengthen your brother's. Whatever happens to you has to go through the loving, careful hand of God and the will of God. We are under the keeping power of Jesus Christ. We are protected by his love. We are protected by his blood. But remember, Satan is clever and determined. Satan will target the mind. That's exactly what he does with Eve. The body with Job, the will with David, the heart and the conscience with Joshua. Clearly, Satan's weapons include 
lies and suffering and pride and accusation? Is the believer immune from lies? No. Is the believer immune from suffering? No. Does the believer sometimes have to struggle with the issue of pride? Does the believer sometimes face both true and false accusation? I think the answers to all of those things are yes. But whether Satan targets the mind, the body, the heart, or the conscience, he can't do permanent harm. Satan can't ultimately and permanently harm you. But guess what? We're also given tools to work with and weapons to fight with. Our weapons include the inspired word of God and the imparted grace of God and the indwelling spirit of God and the interceding son of God in all of the weapons that Satan targets the mind, the body, the will, the heart, and the conscience. We've been given tools in order to protect ourselves. And so, in part, this must mean that. And in verse 19, he says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. John doesn't use the term wickedness in the abstract sense. We sometimes do. Um, We use the term evil. We think of that term evil in the abstract sense, meaning the absence of good. Today marks the 17th year of the anniversary of the horrible shooting that took place in Columbine. 17 years ago today, we were at our little church right around the corner, which was just two blocks from Columbine. And the whole world was talking not about evil in the abstract, but they were talking about evil in the concrete. In other words, it wasn't a philosophical discussion about whether or not human beings are capable of doing horrible things. The moms and the dads and the brothers and the sisters and the world that watched, they understood that some evil person had done an evil thing. The reason why I bring this up is, again, we have to rely on a basic understanding of language in the Greek language. The Greek text uses what's called the dative, masculine. I don't expect you to remember that. Of the adjective poneros. The thing that I do expect you to remember is when he says, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked... One, the reason why it's translated that is because he's talking about not evil in the abstract, but evil in the concrete. He's talking about a wicked being. He's talking about Satan. Satan, remember, introduced sin into the universe. You'll remember also the Bible says that Satan's judgment is certain in Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. God will one day sentence Satan to spend an eternity in hell. It says in Matthew 25, 41, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. 
Why is all of that important? Because he's contrasting. We know that we are of God. Our life, our heart, our circumstances, our past and our present and our future is linked to what Jesus has done, not to what Satan has done. In what way is the whole world under the sway of Satan? Or in the old King James, it says, and the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. The short answer, the world isn't free to obey Christ. They're under the control of Satan. The believer's no longer in bondage to Satan. The believer is free to obey Christ. John is saying that the world, and remember what we've already talked about, the world, the world is that which stands in opposition to God's plan and God's purpose and God's gospel. The world in this sense isn't the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees and the moon up above and a thing called love. It isn't the physical universe, although there is a sense in which the universe is broken and there is a sense in which the world has been hurt by the presence of sin and by the presence of the evil one. The world doesn't share our freedom. We live in a fallen world, a broken world, a corrupt world. We live in a world that's subject to disease and disaster and destruction. This is evidenced every single day, whether you're hearing about an earthquake in South America or in Japan or the material destruction, the world is passing away. And so John is contrasting the mindset that sets itself in opposition to God. The unbeliever and the make-believer remain in Satan's grip. The unbeliever and the make-believer who refuse to come to Christ and receive Jesus and trust Jesus, they have no choice but to obey Satan. And so it shouldn't come as a shock or a surprise to you that your unbelieving family and your unbelieving friends make choices that aren't consistent with God's will and God's plan and God's purpose. And by the way, when I say this, that they have no choice but to obey Satan, does that mean obey Satan in every way? Let me be clear. Sin takes many different forms. Does this mean that each and every person who doesn't know and love and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is going to commit every wrong, senseless, foul, disgusting, uh, sin imaginable. Hey, guess what? In the real world in which we live, there are boundaries, there are restrictions, there are prohibitions. Not everyone sins with equal enthusiasm. But sometimes we forget that the most heinous and the most grievous sin in all of the universe is the person who fails to believe that Jesus is God's provision for sin and grace and mercy and forgiveness. There's all kinds of different sins that take place. But you're under the control of Satan if you believe the one lie, regardless of how moral other conduct might be, if you believe the great big lie 
the Bible's not true. Jesus isn't really the Lord. He didn't really die for my sin. He didn't really rise from the dead. And you conduct yourself in every possible moral way imaginable. That one rebellious and immoral act places you in Satan's camp. One Bible writer wrote, There is no middle ground. Either people belong to God and obey him, or they live under Satan's control. Few things are more disturbing than that statement to the unbeliever. But I think it's true. You're either in the kingdom of light or you're in the kingdom of darkness. So what is John telling us? How do we live free from sin? First of all, he tells us, steer clear of sin. How? Again, the answer shouldn't come as a great big shock. Number one, surrender to Christ. That makes sense. If you're going to be able to steer clear from sin, you're going to be involved in an impossible task if you don't surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to be good, if you want to steer clear from sin, if you want to honor God, but you refuse to, to, to come into a right relationship with him, the chances of you of everything turning out okay is fairly bad if you don't surrender to Christ. So here's what he said thus far. Number one, surrender to Christ. Number two, stay away from Satan. You don't have to be a theologian to figure this out, do you? This isn't all that complicated. Get saved, stay clear from, from Satan, but there's going to be something else. It isn't just simply give your heart to Christ. It isn't just simply steer clear from Satan. It's also stay close to Jesus. That's what he's going to tell us. Keep yourself in Jesus. Keep yourself in, 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 with a spiritual understanding. Look what it says in verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and he's given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. This text is so full of ripe offerings for the starved student that I could pause right here on this verse and teach for the next three weeks on it, but I'm, I'm going to spare you that indignity. I'm going to give you the superficial version. John repeats the words, and we know. Pause. What do we know? We know that the Son of God has come. We know that the Son of God has given us an understanding, not a misunderstanding, that we may know him who is true. He's using the term truth in profound contrast to the concept of that which is false. 
Remember, the false teachers have done their very best to set aside the Bible's teaching concerning the nature of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, the person of Jesus. Remember, we've talked about the Gnostics. These are the people who believed that supernatural insight or information would be sufficient to give you and to place you into a right relationship with God and fellowship with God. The false teachers imagined a world where they could know God apart from Christ and the gospel. And the reason why this becomes so important to you is because the world hasn't changed. We still live in a world where there are people who believe that you can know God apart from Christ and apart from the gospel. It takes place every single time you ask a person, what is it that you believe? And they say, I'm very spiritual. The moment that they say, I'm very spiritual. And you ask them, tell, tell me what you mean by that. Well, I'm very spiritual because I believe in an invisible world. I believe that there's a God. I believe in spiritual things. I believe in spirit beings. I believe this. I believe that. And and don't get me wrong. I, I read an interesting thing that said nine out of every ten Americans pray to God. This is interesting to me. Are they praying to the God of the Bible? Not necessarily. They might be praying to a God of their imagination, a a, a God how they somehow fix in their own mind what kind of a God this God is. The false teachers imagined a world where they could know God apart from Christ and apart from the gospel. And John's message in part is that knowledge of God apart from Christ is impossible. You can't really have relationship with God apart from Jesus. You can't have fellowship with God and with each other apart from Jesus. The Lord Jesus came to the earth to reveal, look what it says, the true God and eternal life. But as they say in the cheesy TV commercials, but wait, there's more. Jesus comes to enable those who by faith believe Jesus and receive Jesus to experience a real and a personal relationship with the God of heaven. And so the Holy Spirit has given believers true spiritual understanding so that we can know the true God. The Holy Spirit points people to Jesus. And I want you to think this through. According to John, the Holy Spirit points people to Jesus. According to John, Jesus points people to the eternal Father. Sorry, Jehovah's Witnesses. According to John, he who has the Son has the Father. But he who does not have the Son does not have the Father. And so the person who claims to be spiritual, the person who claims to know God, the, the, the person who claims to walk with God and be with God and be in fellowship with God, John is saying, no, that can't be true. What does John mean when he says, and we are in him who is true? There's no mystery. 
We're in his son. Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be in Jesus? It means way more than I can possibly say. But let me at least say a few things. It means that we're in the Father, the true God. That's the point that John is saying. If you're in Jesus, you're in the Father. If you're not in Jesus, you're not in the Father, the true God. It also means that we're the present possessors of eternal life. Let me put it another way. If we are united with the Son, we are united with the Father. If we are united with the Son and we're united with the Father, and if the Father is the source of eternal life, then we are united to the source of eternal life. And now we understand again what John meant in John chapter 17, verse 3, when he makes the statement, And the definition in John chapter 17, verse 3, he says these words. I'm going to turn there because I didn't write it down in my notes. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John defines eternal life not in terms of just simply living forever, but in loving forever and being loved forever because you have relationship and fellowship with the source of eternal life. You are connected to the Father. You are connected to the Son. How is it that you know that you have eternal life? Is it because you believe in a theological construct? No. You have eternal life because you have real friendship with the God of the universe. You will exist forever because he exists forever. That's the point that he's making. Only through, so so here's, the father's the source of life. The son, Jesus, reveals that life. And now we understand what Jesus means when he says in John chapter 14, verse 6, I'm the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except by me. The Father's the source of eternal life. Jesus is eternal life. Only through the death and the resurrection of Jesus is eternal life made available to sinful human beings. So how does this knowledge keep us from sin? How does knowing that keep us from sin? Because the Bible teaches that we're adopted into a new family, Romans chapter 8. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they're the sons of God. We have a new family. We have a new redemption. Jesus has redeemed us and purchased us out of the marketplace of sin. It says in Romans again, chapter 3, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. When God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sin that are past Through the forbearance of God, that's Romans 3, 24 and 25. The word propitiation means we have a new covering 
for our sin. Our sin isn't just simply covered, it's also cleansed. We have grace, new favor with God. We have an imputed righteousness, a new record in heaven, and reconciliation, a new union, and substitution, a new sacrifice. Think about that. What does it mean? We have a new family. We have a new status. We have a new covering. We have a new favor. We have a new record. We have a new union. We have a new sacrifice. And that's just touching the very surface of, of what we have. Walter Hilton said, quote, when you attack the roots of sin, fix your thought more on the God you desire than on the sin that you abhor. Do you want to be free from sin? That's what he's saying. He's saying, in order to live free from sin, I want to invite you to love the Savior. You see, the most powerful thing in, a, in the world that will keep a husband faithful to his wife isn't just simply an agreement to be faithful. It's a deep, lasting, and passionate love for your wife or for your husband. You know how on Facebook all kinds of people will ask to be your friend? People will go, hey, will you be my friend? Stupid me, I don't know. I, I hate Facebook. I mean, the only reason why I have Facebook is so that when my children post pictures of my grandchildren, I can see them. But so people will find out I'm on Facebook and then they'll start doing all kinds of stuff. They'll say, will you be my friend? And then someone will say, you know, and I'm thinking, sure. And so, the, so some lady from Florida goes, so, how far do you want this friendship to go? And I go, I'm happily married. I love my wife completely. Usually the response is, oh, never mind. But you begin to understand. How do you fix your thoughts on the God that you desire rather than the sin you abhor? In order to do that, you have to learn to abhor sin. And then you also have to learn how to desire God. And so throughout the letter, John has given us a picture of Jesus. What we think about Jesus affects our thinking and our speaking and our living and our teaching. So how do we keep ourselves from sin? Remember? We steer clear of Satan and we draw close to Jesus. And by the way, in direct proportion to your drawing close to Jesus, it's going to be very, very difficult for sin to make its way. Martin Luther used to say that when sin would knock on his door, he would send Jesus to go answer the door. Augustine said, sin is believing the lie 
that you are self-created, self-dependent, self-sustained. Martin Luther said, sin is essentially a departure from God. Sandar Sikh, uh, an Indian evangelist said, sin is living according to one's own will and casting aside the will of God. How do you live free from sin? Recognize it. Hate it. Forsake it. Steer clear of Satan. Stay close to Jesus. There are lots of reasons to recognize and hate it and forsake it. So what happens when the Christian sins? There's a loss of light in 1 John 1.6. There's a loss of joy in 1 John 1.4. There's a loss of righteousness, 1 John 3.4. There's a loss of love, 1 John 2.5. There's a loss of fellowship, 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. There's a loss of confidence, 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 22. There's a possible loss of health. And even a, poss- a, a possible loss of life. Look, remember what we already studied? If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he'll give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I, I, I don't say that you should pray about that. Remember when we already talked about that. Are there certain sins that people can commit that can kill you? Is it possible to take drugs once? And die from an overdose? Is it possible to be involved in a sexually immoral relationship once and get AIDS and possibly die from AIDS? Is it possible to do something only one time and it changes your life forever? And so John ends our little book with the simple statement in verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Once again, he refers to the reader. Technia is the word that he used. It means my, little, my beloved ones. It's a, it's a word of tenderness. It's a word that's filled with affection. And tenderness. This isn't him with a great big club trying to beat the Christian over the head. John loves his reader. He loves each one. He loves them in their struggle against sin and against self. And against Satan. And it would appear that idolatry was a huge temptation for believers. Paul gives the same admonition in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 14 where he says, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. We might have a hard time comprehending idolatry in our world. But we have American Idol and we have... The voice, and we have the bachelor. But idol worship was a big problem even among the Gentiles in the first century. Idols are anything that serve as a God substitute. God substitutes are anything that take the place of God 
in your life. A God substitute is anything that you're inclined to worship. An idol is anything that you say, I want fellowship with this more than I want fellowship with God. I want relationship with this more than I want relationship with God. Now again, what does John have in mind when he's speaking to the original people that he's writing to in Ephesus and all in that area? Remember, the false teachers invited the people in their world to accept their false teaching and their false images of Christ. And I'm going to suggest to you that the idols weren't just simply made of gold and silver and dirt or stone or wood. He's talking about all of the false God substitutes, the false images that the false teachers had made and given to the people concerning the nature of God, concerning the identity of Jesus and the mission of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus. Because the moment that you decide that the way that the Bible characterizes God and Jesus and the gospel, and you come up with your own twisted and perverted view of it, you've actually fabricated an idol. The false teacher said, invite, they invited John's readers to believe their false views their false teachings. And then when you embrace the false teaching, it's the same as turning from God to idols. Remember, an idol is anyone or anything that rightly substitutes Jesus in your life. An idol is anyone or anything that you place before God in your life. Martin Luther wrote, quote, Whatever man loves, that's his God. For he carries it in his heart. He goes with it night and day. He sleeps and wakes with it. Be it what may. Wealth, self, pleasures, renown, unquote. According to Martin Luther then, Whatever it is, whatever the first thing it is that you wake up and you think about, the thing that preoccupies you, that's the central focus of your life and of your affection, when you get up in the morning and you live for it through the day and you go to bed at night and when you lay your pillow on your head, that is what you are thinking about, then the chances are. It's probably an idol. So, how do, we clear, how do we steer clear of sin? Remember what we've learned? We surrender to Christ. What else? Stay away from Satan. <laughs> what else? Stay close to Jesus. What else? Pursue righteousness. Seek wisdom. Avoid God substitutes. By the way, if you surrender to Christ 
If you steer clear of Satan, if you stay close to Jesus, if you pursue righteousness, if you seek wisdom, and if you avoid all God substitutes, are you going to be in pretty good shape? Probably. Are there other things that might worm their way in and create difficulty for you? Possibly. The unbeliever is invited to believe Jesus. And the believer, the believer is invited to confess their sin, to stay away from Satan to stay close to Jesus, to pursue righteousness, seek wisdom, and avoid God's substitutes because guess what? For the unbeliever, for the unbeliever, they can't stay away from Satan. And they're unable to get close to Jesus. And it's impossible for them to pursue righteousness. Because there is no righteousness apart from Christ. John's told us his reasons for writing in chapter 5 verse 13. If you look just a little bit earlier, it says, I'm writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you would know that you have eternal life. How do you know? Have you passed the tests? Remember in our study? Do you enjoy fellowship with Christ and the saints? 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. Do you walk in the light instead of darkness? 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. Walking in the light, by the way, doesn't mean that you never do anything wrong. Walking in the light means that even if you do something wrong, you won't stay in the dark. You'll return to the light. Do you admit and confess your sin? 1 John 1, 8. Are you obedient to the word of God? 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. It sounds so very cliche for me to say that the Bible will keep one from sinning, but sin will keep one from the Bible. But I think it's true. Sin will cause you to distance yourself from this book. But this book will cause you to distance yourself from sin. The Bible is the great source of information that keeps us from sin. But we're also provided with the intercession of our Savior and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Does your life Send a message to your family and friends that you love the Lord more than you love the world. Do you long to do what's right in your life? Do you seek purity? Is there a decreasing pattern of sin in your life? Then the chances are that you're growing, that you're maturing. John invites us to tell him about our life, about our conscience, and about our victory over sin. 
Do you desire to live free from sin? Do you desire victory over sin in your life? Then surrender to Christ. Stay away from Satan. Stay close to Jesus. Pursue righteousness, wisdom. Avoid God substitutes. And guess what? Maturity will ensure fellowship with God and fellowship with each other. Do you see why this little book is such a gem? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for this time. Lord, thanks for the ministry of John the Apostle and the little book that he wrote. Lord, we confess that we don't know everything about everything. But Lord, we know that this book calls us to live a life that's honoring and pleasing to you. And so again, Father, I pray for that person who hasn't surrendered to you. There's only one big word for the person who hasn't surrendered to Jesus to embrace. Believe. Believe. And there's really only one word for the Christian. Obey. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray for the unbeliever, that he or she would sense in their heart the need to surrender to you. And for the Christian to live their life as if this book is true, to grow, to mature, and to become useful to the kingdom. Jesus' name. Amen.